Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. The question today is, how can we be fixed? Uh, I like it when something that has gone wrong is fixed. I like things to be fixed. If it's in our flat or our car and and I can fix it, that's great. If someone else has to fix it, I, I don't really mind. If they want to do it, fine. If they're a friend, they want to do it for a cup of tea and some thanks, that's fine. Even, I, sometimes even if someone kind of rips me off a professional doing it, I still don't really mind because I like things being fixed. Other people like fixing things, which is a kind of slightly different category. And so when they, think, they see things broken, they're excited. They, you know, immediately, them above the builder, can we fix it? Yes, we can. I'm more of the kind of, can we fix it? Well, I'll try. But the point is that it's fixed. That's kind of how I get other people. They love. It. They even seem to make trouble for themselves. You see property programs. People are like, I'm looking for a project. I think, why are you looking for a project? <laughs> Isn't life full of things to do? They're like, yes, I'm going to break all this down. Then build up. You know, they love that. I love it being fixed. Many people ask, how can we fix ourselves? And there's a billion-pound industry, multi-billion-pound industry, built on this question. How can we fix ourselves? I'm not asking you that question today. I think that's a hopeless question. We've been here for thousands of years. Civilizations have come and fall. They rise. People think, oh, we're making progress, and we make some. But still, in ourselves, there's so much that's wrong. There's so much that's a mess. And even in a city as confident and competent as Edinburgh, We're surrounded by it, and we find it within us as well. So much mess that requires far greater help than we can get from ourselves. We're going to read chapter 5 of Nehemiah's story as we continue our grand design series. And we're in the Old Testament, so God's people are defined uh, by being the family line of Abraham, uh, the inhabitants of the promised land, the Jews. And having been given that land by God, they then spent the following centuries just rebelling against him repeatedly until he had to throw them out of the land as punishment. And then he began to bring them back. And that's kind of where our story is. The capital city, Jerusalem, it was in ruins. And Nehemiah, who was a Jew and a senior civil servant in the uh, occupying Persian empire, it was his job, uh, it was his calling, in fact, to oversee the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. That good work had started, and it has experienced opposition from outsiders. But today we're going to see that there were problems within as well as without. So here's Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Then there were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as, are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, But it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. 
And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their wine and oil that you have been extracting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labour who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered on this, in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So what we're seeing here in this story is people messing up and God graciously fixing them. If you're a Christian here today, you must realise that the call God has given us to advance his kingdom in Edinburgh and elsewhere, to build churches and to show his greatness in all areas of life, that's what you're called to do, and we are a real threat to that not happening. You might even go as far to say the primary reason this won't happen is us. The stakes are very high in how we live. And in what we do. If you're our guest today here, you're uh, not a Christian, you haven't given your life to Jesus, I want to show you today the situation that you are in. I want to expose what's going on in your life and some of the consequences of this. All of us here make a mess of things. So whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, I'm speaking to you today as someone who makes a mess of things. And this mess has consequence. But as much as we all make a mess, we can also all call on God. We can call on God for help and for his grace. We've been singing about it. The question is, will you realise this and will you ask him to help you? We're going to start by looking at what had gone wrong in this story and how we let things go wrong. Then we're going to see how Nehemiah confronted the situation and how God does this with us. And then finally... I want to show you 
how Nehemiah points us not to himself, but to Jesus, who alone can fix us. So how does, how does this mess happen? How does sin, as we call it, happen? Well, in the first five verses, we hear several complaints uh, from the people about what has been going on. So Nehemiah had summoned every able-bodied man to come and take part in this great rebuilding of the wall. It was a great project. That's a wonderful thing to be involved in. Everyone was thrilled to be involved in it. And if there had been a supermarket just down the road that was supplying all of their food, there would have been no problem. But of course, there wasn't. They were an agricultural society. The way you fed yourself was by farming the piece of land that you had. And what happened is you had all been called to go and build the wall. And so the farm was kind of being left by itself. Now, maybe if, that had been, if things had been going well over the past couple of years, that wouldn't have been a problem. You could have said to you know, kind of kids and everyone else, well, just look after this. There's enough harvest. We've got it ready so that this can keep us going for these next couple of months as we rebuild the wall. But that wasn't the situation. Because this building project turns out to trigger a crisis caused by a long-running injustice. There was already famine in the land. They mentioned that. And many of the poorer people had been forced to mortgage their property and even their children to the rich in order to get loans to pay for food and to pay for the Persian taxes that they were under as well. The interest that they were having to pay on these loans was trapping them. They were at the mercy of loan sharks. And these loan sharks, as most loan sharks it seems, had no mercy for them. What made this worse was that these sharks were Jews like them. Our brothers, they're called, in verse 5. Now, this immediately stirs, for many of us, a sense of injustice. We think this is cruel and wrong. How could they do this? It's worse than that. It is a rebellion against God. In the law that he gave uh, Moses to give to this people, God had anticipated that hard times would come. And he told them, this is how you're to deal with it. You can make loans to someone else. If you have money and they don't because hard times come from them, you can give them a loan, but you cannot charge interest. And if, God says to you, you totally run out of money and you absolutely run out of hope and there's nothing else going for you, you can give yourself in service to someone who does have resource and does have supply. You say, I will help you, I will serve you, will you please look after me as I do that? And God says, you must say yes. If you're invited to do that by someone, God says, you've got the wealth, you must say yes. And you don't treat them as a slave. You don't treat them as someone who you despise and, you know, kind of they're a mess, it's their own fault. No, you, you have to treat them, God says, amazingly well. You are to be generous to them the whole time that they're working with you. You are to treat them as a brother, as a sister. And when the time ends of their service, which is never more than a few years, when that time ends, you are to set them up with a Kickstarter fund for their own business, for them to go back to living independently. So not just thanks for all the help, see you later, you're okay now, but have some sheep, have some um, supplies, some wine, some oil, off you go, have a great time. Passages like Deuteronomy 15, which describe this, and uh, we've seen already that Deuteronomy is one of Nehemiah's favourite books, so we know that he knows all about this. God repeatedly tells his people to be generous and to be liberal with those uh, who are in need. 
He says, don't you dare be grudging in this because look how I treated you. Don't you dare be exploitative because look how I treated you. And if you all do this, God says, I will bless all of you. So God offers something that makes no economic sense but makes perfect theological sense and he says, test me in this. You can live this way. It's going to be amazing. It was not how the rich in and around Jerusalem were living. And our natural response to this is to think, what were they doing? God said this. He's promised it. And they did something else. Who, who would be as foolish as to do that? Do they think that, yeah, I mean, have they forgotten what God said? Do they think God won't notice? Weren't they thinking about who they were hurting and who they were defying by this? It is so easy to think those things. Unless, of course, we are the ones who are ignoring what God says. I don't want you to think about what other people have done wrong today. I want you to think about what you're doing wrong. How do you get yourself into the mess that you get yourself into? Why do you ignore what God has said? Pretend that others aren't being hurt. Fool yourself into thinking that God isn't bothered. Even if you're not a Christian here today, and you're like, ah, this sounds a bit heavy, I bet you've upset whatever standard you live by. I bet you've done things that you regret which hurt other people and debased yourself. We call that sin. Every one of us knows what this feels like. Every one of us has experienced this because we've done it again and again. And just to make this simple, very, very simple, there were a lot of laws. Deuteronomy 15, I didn't even know there was a Deuteronomy 15. How could I possibly know all these kind of things? Well, here's when Jesus was asked to reduce this law to the most simple form. What does it mean? What is it about? He said, it's to love God with everything you have and to love those around you completely. And as simple as that, we can look at that and think, no, I'm nowhere near that. No, I've messed up on that already today, certainly in the past week. How does it get like this? Because often I find people seem to be completely fooled. They're like, I have no idea how this happened. It just seems to have happened. It doesn't just happen. I want to help you see how it happens that you might be warned the next time it's about to happen. God himself gives us some insight in Deuteronomy 29. If you ever want to know what's going on in you when you sin, this is so helpful. So he's given them all his commandments. He's told them how they should live. And then he warns them, beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these other nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, the deal God was making with them, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So God's saying to us that it starts in our heart. Whatever the external cause may seem like, it actually starts in our heart. When we turn our affection and our attention away from God, be it ever so slightly. 
because we were made to love and enjoy God and to find all satisfaction in him and his ways. It wasn't that God's like, I've got a small area of your life that I've got some instructions for. God's like, no, I want the whole of your life. And if you give me the whole of your life, you will be so satisfied, so thrilled. Your life will be amazing. Lots of people think that God's always saying, here are all the things you can't do. Actually, it's mostly here are the things you can do. There obviously are don't do's kind of related to that. But God is offering us, he offers us an amazing life. Fullness, satisfaction, excitement, goodness for those around us, not just ourselves. But all of us think we know better. And we turn our hearts elsewhere. We look to someone or something else for purpose, for meaning, for affection, for excitement, for satisfaction. For the rich in Nehemiah's day, the promise before them was, you can be joyfully generous. You can give to those who help, uh, those who are in need of your help. But they rejected that. In their heart, there was a moment when they thought, hmm, I mean, that person, they ran their farm really badly, to be honest. They really made a mess of it. I mean, if I give them more money, it's good money after bad. And... And for whatever reason, greed, self-satisfaction, whatever it was, they became slave owners. It seems unlikely that this is what they were aiming for in life. I don't imagine that the people in this uh, story at the start of it thought, what I'd love to do is get in huge trouble with God and make life awful for a load of my fellow Jews. No one thinks that. You don't think that at the start of something like this, do you? But this is what happens when you allow yourself to be persuaded by temptation when you turn from God to other things. I find the bitter root metaphor that uh, God uses in Deuteronomy 29, I find it really helpful in assessing the state of my heart. I want to be constantly vigilant about this. I know from my own past and from observation of others that little bad things become very large bad things. A tiny, bitter root, if it gets into you, could grow into a massive, poisonous tree if you are not ruthless in pulling it out. And and this, I think, is a helpful way of understanding what's going on when you're tempted, when you're bored, when you're tired, when you are under pressure, when just so much is happening around you, or maybe when nothing is happening around you, and you feel the stab or the tickle of temptation. And the option of sinning is before you. Everyone experiences that. Jesus experienced that. That's not wrong. The critical moment is what happens next. What we do next is vital, and we have to understand what's happening at this moment. There is a bitter root that is trying to lodge itself in us. And what are we going to do with that? If we submit to the temptation, if we accommodate it, the root will grow and it will spread a kind of numbing, deceptive and destructive poison in us. It's like the anaesthetist's needle. When they put it in, you notice it. But the point is that it then spreads something in you that means you can't notice what happens later. And so what starts is a small area of weakness, a little bit of compromise, a slight blurring of the lines, starts to swell, 
starts to grow and begins to dominate everything. And what started as one tiny, small thing can become even your whole life. It rarely feels that significant at that first moment. You know how you've been tempted. You know what those things are for you. The things to say and to do, the things to think. You know what those are. At no, never at that first moment does the thing itself, or usually you say, I tell you what, there's disaster at the end of this road. There is awful disaster that might scar hundreds even of people. No one, no one starts thinking that way. You'd run a mile if it felt like that. But that's because sin is deceptive. And we are lied to And sometimes we even lie to ourselves. But that is what is at stake at that moment. So what are you going to do? I mean, it's pretty simple when I say it like this, isn't it? Don't let that root get in you. Don't let it in. Don't accommodate it. Don't allow it. Don't make one of those deals that we tell ourselves when we're tempted and we want to give in. Everyone else is doing it. Or everyone else is doing something much worse. I'm just going to do it this one time. And I know I said that you know, last month and the month before and the month before that, but just this one time. No one else will know. No one else will be hurt. Or, frankly, those who will be hurt, they kind of deserve it. Or I can always repent later. Or I just can't help it. In goes the bitter root. In it goes, and in it stays if you won't tear it out, and soon it grows. Stop it. Stop it before it can. Tear it out. Dig it out. Whatever it takes. Flee for your life. (coughs) You may feel I'm laboring this point. But I've, I mean, I'm not very old. I've known so many people already who have destroyed their lives and the lives of others because they didn't deal with a little root when they first felt its stab. They didn't say, I want to destroy my family. They didn't say, I want to alienate my work colleagues. They didn't say, I want to give God a terrible reputation in front of thousands of people. They didn't say, that wasn't what they aimed for. But what happened? A tiny bitter root got in and they let it and it grew and they let it and it grew and they let it and soon they weren't the master of themselves anymore. They learned to accommodate it. They learned to excuse it and to hide it. And then one day, that little bitter root burst out in deathly fruit. Because with sin, a day comes when a reckoning is made. The only issue is, what kind of reckoning? This is how sin comes in. This is how we confront sin. When Nehemiah heard what the rich had been doing, he was furious, but he remained wise. So if you look at the order of his response in verse 7, he says, I took counsel with myself. I was mad, so I knew I had to calm down. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're extracting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. So he gets his own feelings under control. He considers the state of his own heart and he works out what is the best plan to deal with this whole situation. And then he speaks to them personally. He speaks to the people who are involved and then because it's a public sin with public consequences and public solution, he involves the whole community in a court scene. And this pattern of private 
uh, sort of personal and then private and then public is typical of how God confronts us with sin. When we're going against him, it's usually this order in which he will work. Firstly, the personal, our own conscience, the thing in us that feels the pain when the root is trying to get in and cries out, stop, don't do that. Our conscience, if you're a Christian, is educated by what God has said in his word. Even if you're not a Christian here today, I bet there's stuff that you know in your life and you do it, but you know it's wrong. That's because you have a conscience. The Bible talks about us, our consciences being either soft or hard. I don't know what yours is like, but it's a pretty easy way for you to find out. If when temptation comes, it horrifies you, you have a kind of instinctive jump away from it. Uh, uh, like, no, what? your conscience is soft. If, on the other hand, you don't do those things, if you frankly just kind of keep giving in to the temptation or it's, it's just inconvenient right now or, you know, just, well, no, no I don't want to do that, then there's a sign, this is a sign your conscience is hardened and hardening and that is the kind of thing that a bitter root does. That is God's first confrontation with you. The personal, you, just yourself. The second is the private. It's those trusted relationships that we are trying to build where people can see what we're really like, where we're honest with them, and they can challenge us lovingly about how we're living. We all need those. It's where we confess what we've done wrong in safety. You know, a whole load of people who are going to be like, oh my goodness, what a scandal this is. They're like, okay, I hear you. That, yeah, that is pretty awful. They're not going to say, oh, never mind, or oh, yeah, we all do that. No, no, yeah, that is awful. But do you know what? God's grace is for you. Let's pray. Let's make a plan about how we can dig this root out and keep you free of it. We have small groups for this reason, so that this large community can exist in smaller communities, and then within those smaller communities, good friendships can be made, trusting relationships where people can help each other with this. Because that's the second place in which God will confront you. When someone else says to you, what is up with that? What is going on with this? Or just simply says, will you tell me what you're finding hard right now? And then there's the public. God's final resort, when we have ignored our conscience and those close to us. It happens to plenty of people in this life. To put it bluntly, they get caught. Sometimes, it's a voluntary confession, but now it's a public thing because the consequences are so broad and so wide. They didn't deal with the sin when it came. They ignored or deceived those who had tried to help them. They thought or hoped they'd get away with it. Now everyone knows. And again, when it happens to someone else, we're keen for that. The things that are going wrong in the world now, and you look at them on the news, you read about them, and you think, that must be sorted. That must be fixed. I want justice. Quite right. So does God. His scale of justice is bigger than ours. We want justice. There will be. In fact, it's going to happen to all of us. See, Nehemiah 5 has a courtroom scene, but that is just a suggestion of what is to come. Jesus promises us in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes back in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations 
and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And Jesus goes on to describe how he knew how each person had lived. In Revelation 20, it shows us this happening again. I saw the dead, John said, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, i.e. everyone. This is for everyone. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's this serious. It's this real. Sin hurts others. It messes up ourselves. But ultimately, it is an offence against God that cannot go undealt with. Nehemiah knows this. He says to the nobles, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? He talks later about the way he lived. He said, I, was, I feared God, so I couldn't do those things. This couldn't be more serious. And so it brings us back to the question that I started with, which I think maybe you maybe are asking it now with a greater urgency than you were before. How can we be fixed? How can we sort this out? Because we all know that there are bitter roots that have dug into us. Some have been there longer than we're even conscious of them. We don't even know how they got there so long ago. But they're there. We know it. Some of them seem rampant. They choke any other kind of godly life that we might have going on. And we've heard people like Nehemiah say, this thing that you're doing is not good. We know it. We know it for ourselves and yet we keep doing it. Or maybe we manage to pull up one thing and in the, almost it seems in the process of pulling up the one thing, something else comes in instead. And that's now the issue. And we just seem trapped and completely caught by it. The Apostle Paul quotes the kind of person who feels this way in Romans 7. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If this judgment is coming, what can I do? How can I be fixed? The answer to this question It's not even in a good leader like Nehemiah. But Nehemiah points us to the true hope that there is. See, Nehemiah's a great guy, but he can't fix us. But the wonderful news is that there is someone who can. Nehemiah knew the truth. He knew what was right, and he told the people as best as he could. Jesus is the truth. He doesn't just know it, he is it. And he has lived among us to show us what this truth, what righteousness looks like on the earth. Nehemiah did his best to live righteously and he tells us much of what he did that was really good. But even he seems to have got slightly caught up in this loan scandal. Jesus never put a foot wrong. Never put a foot wrong. He could even say to his enemies, not even to his friends who say, oh yeah, Jesus, you are great. His enemies, he once said to them, which one of you convicts me of sin? And no one could say anything. Nehemiah didn't uh, levy taxes on the people as his predecessors had done. Instead, he paid out of his own pocket the immense cost. He's feeding like 150 people a day. And the way you're supposed to do that is you tax the people. But Nehemiah says, no, I won't do that. Out of my own pocket, I'm going to pay for that. And he was fully involved in the rebuilding of the wall. He didn't just tell everyone else to go and do it. Now he was there. He did it as best as he could. 
Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. At the expense of his blood, his life given for us on the cross, Jesus bought the forgiveness that our sins so desperately need so that on the coming day of judgment we might be declared not guilty despite all that we've done wrong because someone else has been punished in our place. Jesus did that for us. He has paid the punishment price for any who will ask him. And the final comparison and the answer that we're looking for, how can we be fixed? Nehemiah, great leader, inspiring example, couldn't change anyone's heart. And actually you read it through the whole book, you'll keep seeing it. He says, what are you doing? And they're like, yeah, we're messing up again. Jesus came and he said, I've come to give you new life. To make you so different to what you were before that the only way it can be described in God's word is you become a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And he works divine, holy life in us that we might be changed. 2 Peter 1 says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Isn't that amazing? He hasn't just given you a good start to try to live in a good life and in a godly way. He's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. And this is you may become partakers of the divine nature. God is giving you himself that you might live this new way. This is how we can be changed. This is how we are fixed. By the power of God that has defeated sin and death. No one else can do this for you. You cannot do it. Jesus will do it if you ask him to. You can come to him right now. Desperate with your sin. Because he's taught you the real nature of it. Even in these last few minutes. He is the great teacher. You can come to him now, him who was tempted in every way, yet never sinned, and is so free, therefore, from its entangling roots. And he'll give you sympathy, and he'll give you help. And you can come to him now and ask him to forgive your sins, to pay your debts, which he is so willing to do that he died on the cross for you. And you can come to him now, and ask him for divine power that you might learn to resist temptation, that you might learn to live in the freedom that Jesus has for you, that you might advance his kingdom, that you might help build his church, that you might display the goodness of God, his grand design for you. All of us need him. Some of you are going to realise you are recognising right now your need of him for the first time. Others of us, we're coming back again. And the great thing is, he'll welcome you back again. Just as well as he welcomed you the first time. He will not turn you away, but you must come to him now, whilst you still can. Those who Nehemiah confronted didn't offer a word of excuse or explanation. When we really see our sin and see the holiness of God, there's nothing to be said. 
except, I am sorry. Will you please forgive me and give me your grace? They immediately stopped the wrong that they were doing and they put right the injustices. God is calling you today to do the same. And by the love and power of his son Jesus, you can. So we're going to take a moment now to enable you to respond. It may help you to close your eyes, just to focus on yourself. And the God whom you have rebelled against and offended and yet who holds out his hand to you now and says, take it, I will give you all that you need. What's the thing? What is what's that sin, that area that you know you've just been living wrongly? As you think about it now, I want you to tell God your deep sorrow at having done that and your desire to turn away from it by his power. Satan, I'm so sorry that I've done that. Please forgive me. Thank you for giving your son that he might take the punishment in my place. And I want to commit now to living my life your way, in your power. Please fix me and go on fixing me, oh God, until I come to be with you when everything will finally be changed. We're going to sing a song now to help us respond together. If God has spoken to you today, don't let that go. Don't just be like, oh yeah, yeah, now I'm going to have tea and coffee or whatever. Maybe speak to a friend who's here, speak to your small group leader. If you want particular prayer, we'll have a ministry team who'll be upstairs. And we say there, pray for healing, they do, can help you in this as well. Maybe you're not even a Christian here today and yet this hope has suddenly come before you and what I prayed, you prayed for the first time. I'd love for you to come and speak to me or go to the ministry team afterwards that we might know and help you with that. Let's all of us now, let's stand and let's sing and thank God for what he's done for us.